Morning, guys. Morning. Morning. Uh, so, man, we had an awesome first service this morning. I just wanted to share. I know you guys are like two ships passing in the night <laughs> between our first and second service. Um, I mean, we had we had three families who came back for the first time since all this COVID mess started this morning, and that was exciting just to to see them come back and to be back around their church family. It was so exciting to see them be almost reintroduced to a certain degree because uh, I didn't get to spend a lot of time with them uh, in January and February, so it was really cool to see them back. But um, we had uh, first-time guests in the first service, so God's, God's moving. I know you guys are typically here in the second service. Praise God for that. But God's moving in our first service too, and so I um, just wanted to encourage you with that. This is the final week in Matthew chapter 5. Um, we're kind of wrapping out. Uh, this October series that we've called the theme of the kingdom, uh, Math- Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five through seven, is really uh, just this ongoing teaching of what it looks like to be a part of God's kingdom here on earth. And so we'll get there here in a second. But um, next week we're ki- we're jumping into chapter six, and so through chapter six and seven, uh, we're going to spend four weeks looking at some intense teaching from Christ uh, that we're just calling Kingdom Come. Because uh, uh, Jesus is really going to spend most of his intention on what does it practically look like every day to live as part of the kingdom here on earth. We've been kind of looking at uh, a lot of high-level stuff. Now we're getting down to the practical stuff next month. It's going to be really cool. That leads us all the way up to the Christmas series that starts the last Sunday in November. Uh, we're calling Advent. And, man, God has just sculpted this whole thing so well. By the time we start into our Advent series at the end of November, after we've just spent 12 weeks talking about the kingdom of God and what it looks like through the Sermon on the Mount, they're going to mesh so well together, and it is going to rock your face off. Okay? So it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited. Um, if you can't tell, don't miss a single Sunday for the rest of the year, and you won't miss it either. Okay? Last week, we saw Jesus accusing uh, the Jewish people of exploiting loopholes in the law of God. Uh, they had taken these important statements from the Old Testament, from the first five books of the Old Testament, and they were, they were trying to twist them to fit their own desires. And Jesus said, this ain't good, as you can imagine. This week, the same thing is kind of happening. Jesus is correcting some bad ideas and bad theology with his teaching. So I want to read the whole thing, um, beginning in verse 38 of chapter 5, and then... Uh, Then we'll come back and pray and then talk about it, okay? Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. For one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let me pray. We'll dive in. Father God, we believe and know that what I've just read is your truth. God, not a man-made concoction, but we believe it's the truth from you, that you gave, uh, God, you were speaking through Jesus um, 2,000 years ago uh, to a particular group of people, but God, today 
it applies to us as well. So God, help us today as we talk about what this is really saying and what it's not saying and how we can apply it to our lives. God, help us uh, to live different because of what you speak today. And uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I've been looking forward to this set of verses since I laid this uh, 12-week series out. I have a note page that is torn out, so I'm just going to go in and tear it out before it falls out. All right. Um, since I started this series, because I knew that there were going to be so many tough messages that we were going to talk about, talking about sin and talking about just how wretchedly awful our hearts are as human beings. And I thought, well, this one's about love. That'll be nice and pretty and just encouraging and it'll be good. And in my mind, that was the truth. Uh, but on Monday, when I read these for the first time again in preparation to preach this week, I just laughed because in my own heart, transparent pastor moment, uh, this is some of the hardest passages for me to study and to apply to my own life because, well, you'll see as we go through that it'll probably speak to you too, okay? Um, this is a tough message, and it's hard uh, that Jesus is saying, but I pray God uses our time not to just convict us of our heart issues, but to build us up and empower us to live differently in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Look alive. All right, here we go. Uh, it's going to be a good day. So three things Jesus tells, us about, uh, tells his disciples about love. The first is this, love is not seeking revenge. Love does not seek revenge, Okay. Jesus brings up a well-known quote from the Old Testament that's probably going to sound familiar no matter how much you've been in church or how much you know about the Bible. You've probably heard somebody say this. The Jews of Jesus' day would have known it too. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The first five books of the, of the Old Testament, uh, what we call the, the Torah or what Jesus would have called the Torah, um, they, divine, they define many of the things Jesus has been bringing up here. Um, they were given to the people of God in preparation for actually becoming a nation. Don't lose sight of that, okay? Don't lose sight that when Moses, when God gives Moses the first five books of the Bible, Moses writes it down and gives it to the people. Remember what was going on. It's so important. They have just left Egypt where they were enslaved, and they're coming back to the land that God had promised so long ago to their great-great-great-great-grandpappy, right? They're coming back to the land of Israel to take ownership of it and to set up a nation and to finally, at this point, they're just families, but they're going to set up a nation. That's important to keep in mind because oftentimes when we read the Bible, we open it up anywhere we want and we try to act like uh, we read it as if God is speaking directly to a North Alabama church in the 21st century. And he's not. In fact, what we're going to look at, this, this verse itself, and, and I think others like it, honestly have more to do with our constitution in practice and purpose than they do practices for worship of the Christian church, right? These laws have a particular purpose. They were given through Moses for a unique reason. This one in particular, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was a civic law. It was a mandate for the people of God as they existed as a nation, God knew that when they settled in the, in the land of Israel that they would form a nation and they would get judges and they would, they would go through the whole process of setting up a, a, a judicial system, right, just as every nation does. And they needed some specific laws, some things that are going to be important. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. However, by the first century when Jesus comes on the scene, 
several years have passed by, and this civic law, this thing that God gave to govern and to be handled in, uh, in, in courtrooms or among judges has become a personal standard. If you're a note taker, that's point A. A civic law had become personal. So the Jews are no longer in charge. If you, if you know the history of this, the Jews are living in the Roman Empire. So they don't get to call the shots anymore. They don't have a, a, a they're not a nation um, as we think of it. They're living under Roman occupation. So this law, instead of being a guide for judges and the courtroom as God gave it to be, it had become a chip on the shoulder of every Jew who's wronged. Yeah, do something to me. See what happens. An eye for an eye, a tooth for two, right? They, they were using it as justification for revenge, right? That's the way the Jews were using this. Someone did something wrong to you, go handle it. God said it was okay, an eye for an eye. Go handle it. Do you see the chaos that this would create? I saw this when I was in youth group growing up. There was a thing that was apparently directly connected to discipleship and growth in the late 90s and early 2000s. That was rolling yards. I don't think you could be a fully devoted follower of Christ when I was in youth group. and I, We talked more about rolling yards than we did Jesus. I don't know how it became so connected to spiritual growth, but it was the case. And if you're a northern transplant, as we had in the first service, TPing houses. That's what you call it. Okay, there you go, Jeff. TPing houses. Um, but I hated more than anything for my yard to get rolled because I had to clean it up. It wasn't this fun family event, right, where mom and dad came out and we had our, our bags and we all had a good time doing it because um, it, it was on me. My mom would ask who rolled the yard, right? And then if it was my friends, I had to clean it up. If it was my sister's friends, she had to clean it up. That was how we handled it. And as bad as I hated my yard getting rolled, something so natural happened the moment I figured out who did it. Right? I made plans. I got my friends together and we circled up. Hey, man, what are y'all doing this weekend? Anybody got a black hoodie I can wear? <laughs> and that we started making plans because sweet justice, justice must be brought from the fires of heaven, right? Like we've, we must rain down toilet paper on them because an eye for an eye, right? It's biblical. This is clearly not what Jesus is talking about, not what God, what God was saying back in the Old Testament when he said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How do I know that? Because Jesus is correcting it here. He says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, verse 39. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Don't resist an evildoer. This would have shaken its hearers just as it should shake you because this was not what they expected from the Messiah, the Savior, who, who they thought was going to be coming in exacting vengeance on the Romans for taking the land of God's people. What Jesus does is he takes the idea of revenge, which was so ingrained into the hearts of God's people, and he makes it, he, he shows them that it is totally unchristlike to seek revenge. That's what he does. This is an unchristlike behavior to seek our own revenge. And so 
there's an issue, right? But there's the re, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law had gotten out of the hand, had a hand out of hand even more, because this is point B. If you're a note taker, um, God gave it as a protective maximum, or you can say ceiling, if you prefer. But it had become an expected minimum or floor. See, the law was actually given originally to limit the punishment that the that the people of God would exact. You see, we typically don't have trouble paying someone back for what they've done. What we need are guidelines to make sure that we don't go too far. And that's what God did. God gave them limits to make sure that the punishment fits the crime. Let's go back to the yard rolling. (laughs) There was another part of our revenge strategy. Um, We did our best to ask around. This worked great in middle school um, because... In high school, you could actually roll someone's yard and, like, keep it a secret. That doesn't happen in middle school, right, because you've got to let everybody know. And so it gets around pretty quick. Um, but we did our best not only to find out who rolled our yard, but to find out exactly how many rolls of toilet paper they purchased and used on our yard. Because it would, what we wanted to do was to use that exact number of toilet paper, right? No. You get, that was the minimum, right? You use 100 rolls on mine, hey, I'm buying a 50-pack on top of that, right? You had to do at least 30 to 50%. That was the accepted minimum in our uh, in the groups I ran in, okay? I don't know what yours was. But um, if you used 100 on me, it was 130 or at least, uh, maybe even 150 that we would use back. Because we naturally, we have a natural draw towards paying someone back not equal to what they've done to us. More. That's the natural tendency. And that's why God knew it was necessary in the Old Testament to say an eye for an eye, not two eyes for an eye or death for an eye, but an eye for an eye. God knew the heart of man and he knew that the government would need limits so that it would actually be true justice. Because if you give, if you punish someone more than they actually deserve, then it's not justice anymore. However, when Jesus talks about this law as it pertains to the personal aspect of his disciples, he actually flips the whole thing, right? We know that we have a natural tendency to overdo revenge. Jesus says instead of overdoing revenge, which is the natural bent of your heart, he says overdo love. It just blows their minds, right? This is what he flips the whole thing. Yeah, that's me. No, you're good. Sorry. <laughs> you're good. I was like, that's my voice. Oh, man. All right. Um, you actually, he says to overdo love, not revenge. If he, and he gives four examples. He said, if someone insults you publicly, even as far as backhanding you in public, Jesus says, just chill out. That's tough to do. If someone sues you and wants your shirt, he says, blow their mind and offer your jacket too. Then he says, if a Roman soldier makes you walk with him and carry stuff from one town to the next, even if it's a mile, he says, volunteer to go too. If someone needs something from you, just give it to them. Don't even charge them. See, Jesus is saying, I know your natural tendency 
is to overdo your revenge, but flip that and start overdoing in love. And I know this is not just a countercultural idea that Jesus is sharing. It goes against our very nature as human beings. So love, he says here, is not seeking revenge. There's no place for revenge in the life of a believer. But Jesus also helps them see this. Point number two, love is not selective, Jesus says next. So if Jesus has been describing in, in, in the first part how to love, he now shifts his focus to who we are to love. But before we even open up the text again, let me ask you a question. Who do you find it easy to love? For real. Answer out loud. Just remember your own Facebook. What would you say? Rosie? We all do. What did you say, Kathy? Family. Family, yeah. Family, friends. How about nice people? Aren't nice people just easier to love? Nice people. I'll, I'll say this. People like me. Right? We have a... Na- no, I don't mean the nice part. I mean, I have a natural tendency to... To, it's easier for me to love people who are like me. That's a natural tendency of our hearts is we're drawn to people that have the same interests and have similar backgrounds and all those things. That stuff comes naturally. But let me flip it. Who do you find it difficult to love? Boss. Some of us have jerks for bosses. He's sitting on that all the time. I, I got to always watch out for that. Sometimes your family, even though Kathy said sometimes your family is easy to love, let's just be honest, sometimes they're not. (laughs) Can be. Friends even sometimes. People who are different from me, right? People who are different from people who have different backgrounds. It's it's not as easy to love people who are different from us. And jerks. People that work for you. (laughs) So I turn that around. That's what I did there. All right. Uh, Anyway, no. So we got we've got these things, right? This is this is what's going on. We 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 know if we're honest, we know that we find it easy to love. Uh, the answer that was given in the first service is it's, it's easy to love someone who loves you, right? It's just reciprocated, but it's harder to love someone who doesn't. And if we're honest, this is this is the place we find ourselves in, and this is the place where we find the first century Jews find themselves. They had taken this Old Testament verse and they had filled in some things that they perceived as gaps with their own ideas. Matthew 5, 43, Jesus says, You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, one of those two things sounds biblical, doesn't it? (laughs) You will find love your neighbor in the Bible. What you won't find is hate your enemy. That's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. And if if you have a Bible that actually, like, bolds, quotes from the Old Testament or has, like, footnotes... There is no footnote for hate your enemy because it's not in the Bible. But it it had become the common truth of the day. They said, okay, God told us to love our neighbor. But he didn't say what to do about our enemy. So I guess we have free reign on that. And what should we do with our enemies? Hate them. And so it was this thing that they had done. It's very much like Daniel. I say, Daniel, don't hit your sister. So what does Daniel do? He kicks her. No, he wouldn't hit her. I told him not to, right? He kicks her, right? God, he, hey, dad didn't say not to kick her. And that's what's going on here. God's people say, 
the God's people in the Old Testament, they're saying, okay, God said to love our neighbor, but he didn't tell us what to do with our enemy, so we're going to do what we want. But Jesus comes in with a correction for them in verse 44. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That should mess with us. right? That should be hard to hear. He doesn't just say, love your enemies. He ramps it up and says, pray for those who persecute you. Now, he said in verse 39, if you remember, we read that one. In verse 39, he's talking about, um, where is it? Verse 39, he says, uh, don't resist an evildoer. And then he begins to talk about how we, we, should, we, sh- we don't have the right as Christians to retaliate just because someone does something to us or even to resist. But he says, he doesn't stop there though. Jesus doesn't say don't retaliate. He says, even positively to seek the good of your persecutors and to pray for them. That's tough. But let me make sure we understand the intensity of that statement. What Jesus is not referring to is somebody who cuts you off in traffic. Okay, that's frustrating. But that's not what Jesus is saying. That's down here compared to what Jesus is saying. Someone who leaves a mess and doesn't flush the toilet before you, come on people. We're all these are public restrooms. Flush the toilet. Use your foot. I know COVID. Use a foot, something, right? It's frustrating. But still, that's down here, right? That's down here. Jesus says to pray for those who persecute you. Jesus doesn't tiptoe his way up to this. He jumps off in it. Jesus says, intercede to the Lord on behalf of a person who has physically assaulted you because of your faith. Y'all, that's a lot harder to do than praying for somebody who cuts me off in traffic. This is praying for someone who has physically assaulted me because of my faith. Y'all, that is an unnatural response. It's totally unnatural and sounds a little bit crazy if we're honest. But this is the call of Christ for those who claim to be his followers. The reason Jesus gives that we should, we should love not only our neighbors, but also our enemies. Did you catch it? He says love them because God does. He says we're supposed to love them because we're children of God and God the Father loves all people. He says God doesn't just bless the righteous with rain and sunshine. Right? You may pray that a, a rain cloud be over your neighbor's house. But God, show, he, he shines, he gives the rain and the sunshine to the righteous and the unrighteous, Jesus says. We know, we know that the crops of many corrupted pe- corrupt people and people who hate God grow and have a harvest year after year. You know people in your workplace that are awful, awful people and sometimes they get a promotion over you. Sometimes they have better health than you. Sometimes they have uh, happier families, it seems, than you. There's a theological term that I want to I show you, that Jesus doesn't just love the righteous, but he loves even his enemies. The theological term is common grace. There's a certain level of grace that God gives to all 
regardless of the spiritual relationship that he has with them. Many people who hate God woke up this morning with breath in their lungs. Common grace. Many people who don't love God are going to get a promotion or a raise this month. Common grace. They have good families. They have good health. They have a nicer car than you. (laughs) This is common grace, a general gift from God. So put that away and impress your friends with that. Common grace, all right. So, the, But then Jesus pokes the bear just a little bit more, and he, he talks about a participation trophy. Do you guys know? Y'all know what participation trophies are, right? My generation has been ruined by participation trophies. We all agree with that? Amen. Is that untricked you? <laughs> Millennials. It's, it's these participation trophies they got their whole life. That's what's ruined them. Guess who gave us? The participation trophies. Ha! Flipped it around on you, okay? Yes, millennials, we're all spoiled rotten and we're ruined. However, somebody ruined us. So it's not our fault, which is also a part of... That's like a Gen Xer blaming everybody else, right? Gen X is in the room, Greg. Um, So anyway, uh, that's... uh, (laughs) It's just the first one I thought of. Um, but the, these are, there's generational stuff. So participation trophy, that's where I was trying to go. Participation trophy. That's what Jesus says here. Uh, let's look at it. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax, collect- tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do this? Jesus says, oh, look at you. You love people who love you. Big whoop. Right? That's the, that's the comment that Jesus is making. Jesus says, it, even those who don't know God love people that love them. Jesus says what sets the kingdom citizens apart is to love those who don't. To love those who are different. To love those that are outside of our circle or even attacking our circle. Church, if we restrict our love only to members of our own circle, we are no better than what the rest of the world expects and practices. So let me say to you here, if you come in every week and you only speak to your friends, in this church even, you come in and you only talk, you talk to the same people every week. Why do you talk to the same people every week? Because it's the people you're comfortable with. And a new person comes in and you don't speak to them. Listen very carefully. You don't need the Spirit of Christ to welcome people like you. You don't need the Spirit of Christ to make your friends feel welcome here. The Spirit of Christ helps us speak to those who are different from us. To speak to those who are far from God. To speak to those who look different or act different or seem Weird, like Kenny. I'm just wearing the whole staff out. Patrick, you're next, all right? But this is what God has called us to do. And listen, church, you can say you're a hospitable person. But if the only people you're hospitable to are those who already have a relationship with you, then you don't, that's not a gift of God. That's common sense. That's what, that's what even people who hate God will do. 
we must be different. Kingdom citizens act differently. Historians even point to the fact that this very teaching of loving one's enemies provided one of the most distinctive traits of the early Christian movement. The thing that set us apart 2,000 years ago was the fact that we could look at our enemies and say, I'm praying for you and I love you. Where did we get that? Our Savior who was hanging on the cross as He prayed for those who hung Him there. This is the thing that set us apart and I'm afraid that even in my own life and I know in the church as a whole that we're losing this. We're becoming a closed off unit where we do all of our own things inside of this circle and the rest of the world can die and go to hell for all we care. We only want us and church. That's got to be in. That's got to quit. It's got to stop in my own heart and in yours. There is no place for this doctrine. It's unbiblical. It's unchristlike. Shoot it. All right. Why? That's what we we're trying to get to. Why should we do this? Just a reminder. Why is this important? Jesus has already said, because our heavenly Father does the same. You see, love your enemies is not some philosophical mindset that Jesus challenges his people to adopt, to live in some high state of philosophical ideas. It is a direct reflection of the character of God himself. Loving our enemies is one of the best ways that we can show God to the world. Loving those who are hard to love is the best way we can show God to the world. However, before you start going through these verses and making you a checklist. All right. If somebody slaps me, I got to let them slap me again. That'll be tough. If somebody sues me, I got to give them more than what they asked for. If somebody wants me to walk with them, I got to go further. Right? Before you start making a checklist, let's not lose sight of what Jesus is trying to convey in the whole message. We can take these passages and go, ah, eight things that Jesus says we're supposed to do. Jesus is literally doing the opposite of that. Jesus is telling them, look, y'all are trying to live by a checklist. That's never what God designed. The law was never to be a list of things to check off in our actions. The laws that God gave to the Jews in the Old Testament were to be things that revealed his heart and the heart that he desired from his people. The heart is the key of the kingdom, the theme of the kingdom. And it's this idea that Jesus brings out in verse 48. I want to read it again and let it sit heavy for a second. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You there? All right, let's talk about it. First off, therefore, if you've been around the block with me a little bit, you know that I won't let a therefore just slip by. Therefore is an important word. Anytime you see the word therefore, okay, it is, it is, it is a, a tipping point. It's saying because of everything that I just said, pay attention to this. 
So here Jesus is using therefore to point back at least to the six statements that we've been talking about in October and how each one of these laws was never about the law itself but about the heart and desire behind the law. God has never been after our actions. He's always been after our hearts. And because of this, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that can be a ridiculously intimidating passage and verse. But let's look at it in context. Remember Jesus is speaking to a bunch of probably teenage young adult Jews. Okay, So to a Jewish person who's grown up according to the standards of the Old Testament, when they hear be perfect, what do they think about? Keeping what? The law. Keeping the law. Right? Keep the law. Now, you may disagree with me on this, but this actually wasn't completely impossible. Because you can compile any set of laws for someone to keep, give them enough time and the right motivation And they'll figure out a way to keep most of them, if not all of them. So a Jew, when he hears Jesus say, be perfect, what he hears is do the right things all the time. And that's probably what you thought of. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say be perfect. What did he say? Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, that's a wrinkle that we need to iron out. Why is God perfect? Is God perfect because he keeps the law? Is God perfect because he's never murdered, committed adultery, lied, stolen? Most of the command, most of the 613 commands of the, the first five books of the Bible, God couldn't even break because he didn't have a body. <laughs> he's a spirit. Right, So most of the laws God can't even break. There's something greater going on. Why is it that God is perfect? God is perfect not because of what he does. He is perfect because of who he is. God is perfect in his character, his motives, and his desires. The very thing that Jesus has been pushing his disciples towards. And that's why Jesus wraps up this section of his Sermon on the Mount here by saying this, in my words, not his. Point number three, love is being more than doing. Love is being more than doing. Jesus reminds his disciples here that kingdom citizens are not simply law obeyers. They are to be like God. Not called to do first, but to be. This is a stark difference from the way that the Jews would have understood the law by Jesus' day. But this is the very thing that God has said back in Leviticus 19.2 in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, He tells Moses, speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God had already tried to show them even in the law, that this was more than creating a set of rules. It was about revealing the character of God and His value so that they could become like Him. It was never about doing, but about being. 
And we can be guilty of the exact same thing. Allowing our hearts and minds to run rampant. Hey, but you ain't heard, ever heard me say no cuss word. I don't go to the bars. But why, there's sin all in your mind and in your heart. Man, we can't control our minds and hearts, but maybe we control our tongues and our bodies. Or maybe we're loving those like us well and we want to pat on the back. But remember, when we have no regard for those who can, we consider different, and especially those who are our enemies, Jesus says, big whoop. It's not what God has called us to be. God desires to transform us inside, not to help you control the outside. To live a life trying to simply look good on the outside is striving to be a religious person. However, giving God full reign in our hearts to change our desires and natural sinful bent is to be in relationship with Christ. Now, if today, as I've talked about this, that you would admit that you have simply been living your life from a checklist with no real desire to be changed inside, I want to challenge you to think about whether you have truly surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. You see, to give God your actions in your mouth is great, but to give Him your heart, that is is salvation. To give him anything less is not. If this talk about how and who we are to love struck a chord, just know that you're not alone. It's been it's been it's been plucking my cord all week. That's not a thing, is it? Did I just make that up? Anyway. We were rolling. It struck a chord with me this week, but listen. The natural thing that we can do when a message like this is said that we all struggle with is to go, well, we're all in the boat together. Hey, even the pastor struggles with this. And we continue on in it. Because everybody, everybody's, everybody struggles with this. Lord's going to show grace. Listen, just because we can all acknowledge that we're messed up people doesn't mean, it doesn't give us a right not to repent. We must all come before the throne of God and ask for help to love those we don't find easy to love. And if you need motivation, remember, you're not easy to love. Not coming from me. Coming from God, right? Romans 5.8, one of my favorite verses I've shared with so many people. God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Two verses later. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Church of God didn't wait for us to be likable. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. Jesus was sent to save Heath Haney before I was ever born, let alone before I ever repented. God is the perfect example of perfect love for all of mankind because you and I are messed up and he loves us anyway. We have been called to mimic the love of God. No excuses. 
Let's ask God to change our hearts towards those around us and be broken and humble even in the midst of the most difficult people this world can throw at us. If you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, I got bad news. You're a sinner and an enemy of God. Because of your sin, you deserve to be separated from God forever. But just as we read, God sent Jesus to die for your sins, even before you knew you needed it. And today, you can trust in Him. You can give Him your heart, not your actions, not your mouth, your heart, so that He makes you. He doesn't train you to become something that you're not. He makes you to be something that you're not from the inside out. Today, myself or one of our decision counselors that will be by the back door during this last song would love to talk with you about how you can trust in Jesus today to save you and begin transforming your heart into that God-like perfection that he desires and has planned for you. During this last worship song, I'm going to stand right down front as we sing. Um, We'll have decision counselors again by the back door to talk with you about any prayer needs that you have, any decisions you need to make. Here we call them next steps. Right? God's word has been opened. You've heard it. What are you going to do with it? What is God stirring in your heart to do today? If you want to talk with us about big decisions like salvation or baptism or church membership here at East, any other decision, we'll be available to talk with you. But today you can respond through singing, through praying up here at the altar if you just want to come forward and uh, as, a, as evidence that God's stirring in your heart and come before him and pray, that's welcome too, all right? I'm going to say a word of prayer, and then that'll give us opportunity all after I pray to respond as God is leading in our hearts. Father, uh, we do, God, just need your help. Um, God, I, I know, God, I encounter so many people that I, I know in my life, God, I just think they're hard to love. God, some people I think may, sometimes don't want to be loved, God. There's, there's walls up, there's, there's pain that's in their heart. It just makes them hard to love. But, God, then I'm reminded, just as we just talked about, God, that I'm a broken sinner. And it didn't, my, my walls didn't stop you from loving me anyway. God, I pray that the people of Lindsay Lane East would be known as kingdom citizens through the way that we love. God, not that we'd can't just buy into the culture around us and and separate over politics and policies and garbage God that we would be broken before you and show love to everyone around us God may it start with me be with this time of response God urge us to the next steps we need to make God even if they're simple God prick our hearts towards the things you need us to do it's in Jesus name I pray